Jesus on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And so he carried me away in, in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names and blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. When we come to the end of chapter 16 of Revelation, we are officially ended with the chronological kind of section of the tribulation, the great tribulation. Now comes the second coming of Jesus and the beauty of all that follows that. So we have the seals that have been broken open, the trumpet judgments have come forth, the seven bold judgments have now come forth. And in chapter 17 and 18, we come to another one of those parenthetical passages in the book where God wants to give us some additional insight into some of the things that he did not want to break up the swiftness of the chronology by stopping and talking about these things. And in chapter 17 and 18, it describes the judgment that God is going to pour out on Babylon uh, during the tribulation period. And chapter 17 is a description of the coming destruction of what is known as religious Babylon. Chapter 18 is a description of the future destruction of what is known as commercial Babylon. We don't know when these two events happened uh, strictly. We can't be dogmatic about it in terms of the tribulation period. But an educated guess would be that this judgment of chapter 17 upon religious Babylon occurs at the three and a half year mark of the seven year tribulation and then gives way to the religion of the Antichrist and that this judgment of commercial Babylon occurs at the very end of the tribulation at the time of uh, Jesus's uh, second coming. One of the things that's very, very interesting as, as we read this in particular chapter 17 is that you would think that following the rapture of the church, the removing of Christians and Christianity from the world altogether, and the presence of the Holy Spirit through the church, through his people, that uh, religion would disappear, that the world would become this place of just uh, deep and dark and uninterrupted uh, atheism that there would be no religion and the absence of God that everyone would be cheering religion is over now it is you know the worship of of man uh, without any kind of distraction but revelation chapter 17 teaches us that even following the rapture of the church that the world is going to be very very religious uh, the religion is going to blossom, it's going to bloom. In fact, it's going to fill the whole world 
after we're removed uh, from the world. It's going to dominate the world from one end to the other. I think it's very important to understand the distinction between Christianity and religion and how it's basically used within the culture. The word religion, in my understanding, is that our word religion comes from a Latin word that means to link. And in a technical sense, Christianity is a religion. In fact, by that definition, it is the only religion in the whole world because it is the only thing that allows man to be linked into relationship with God. But when we use the term religion today uh, around the world, most often it's spoken of by some system that men have put together, uh, some means of commandments or obeying some set of rules or whatever it might be by which uh, we reach up to God. It is man's attempt to reach God from, you know, the starting point of, of earth. And so we devise all of these rules and all of these concepts about God and commandments and, and all. And then if we keep these, then we can reach uh, up, up to uh, God. And that's the idea. We are the, in, in religion, man is the initiator and God is, is the responder to what man does. You do these good things for God and then God does these good things for you. Now Christianity is the polar opposite of that. Because it's not based upon man reaching up to God, but it is based upon God reaching down to man. And God in his word tells us that there is no way that a single one of us is good enough to reach up to God. None of us is big enough, powerful enough, righteous enough to reach up to God. Not from this fallen earth into the holiness and the beauty of heaven. Cannot happen. Isaiah puts it maybe the most graphic in all of the Bible. It's certainly one of the verses that comes to my mind all of the time related to this. When he describes in terms of us and our righteousnesses, when he says, Isaiah declared God through him, but we all are like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Filthy and unclean. That's our righteousnesses. That's not our sin. <laughs> That's not us at our worst. That is us at our very best. Paul wrote to the Romans and he said that there is none righteous, no, not one. None of us can in and of ourselves establish a rightness or a right standing before God based upon our own works. God knew that. <laughs> He doesn't beat us over the head with that. That's just the facts about us. He's honest with us, and we're honest with ourselves, and we recognize it to be true. And so God looking at that and recognizing that to be our condition, but wanting to save us, found a way by reaching down to us and saving us in a way that is not based upon our good works, our righteousness, our feeble attempts to please him, but based upon a Savior and a salvation that already pleases Him. He's made salvation a free gift for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world, He gave God reaching down to man, His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
And when a person puts their trust in Jesus for their salvation, the Bible says, Romans chapter 4, that the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us. And that's a, a big word for today. It's not used anywhere apart from Christianity. But it's an important one to understand. For something to be imputed to me means it is put to my account. And so that because I have put my faith in Jesus for my salvation, God looks at me and he no longer sees my unrighteousness, but he now sees Jesus' righteousness put to my account. The world religious system that's going to thrive during the tribulation period is called in verse 5, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. And in order to understand this a little bit, we need to understand a little bit about Babylon before we begin. And we remember that of the, 104, or the 404 verses that make up the book of Revelation, fully 278 of them are direct references to the Old Testament so we can understand and interpret in a safe way the book of Revelation as we do it through the eyes of, of the Old Testament. And so we'll fall back on the Old Testament here a little bit to try and get our bearings. The name Babylon comes from a city called Babel, which is introduced to us uh, almost at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 10. It was a city that was established by a man by the name of Nimrod. And uh, under Nimrod's direction, he was a, a mighty hunter, or in, in some translations, a mighty rebel against uh, the Lord. Uh, Babel is mentioned not only in chapter 10 being established by him, but then it's mentioned again in Genesis chapter 11, verse 9, where we're told the whole earth had one language, one speech, and it came to pass as, one, as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the valley of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And then they said to one another, this is man following the flood. Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. What Babel was from the very beginning was a deliberate rebellion against God and against his word. God had spoken to man following the flood, and he said to them, Genesis 9, 7, As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. In this, God was just reinforcing the command from the Garden of Eden all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 when he spoke concerning his desire for man to Adam and Eve, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And here is man now determined to disobey God's commandments, to do things the way that they want to do, not to disperse and populate and fill the earth, but now they want to stick together. They want to dwell in the land of uh, Shinar. And, and so, as they said there, let us build ourselves a city and all, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. We read it, think nothing of it, but in the light of the command that was given to them, it's direct disobedience. The, the, the Tower of Babel was an organized rebellion against God and His Word. 
It's just a purpose, uh, purposeful uniting together to rebel against God. And in that passage in, in Genesis chapter 11, the word uh, phrase, let us, is repeated three times. Let us, let us, let us, associated with the disobedience in the passage. The Tower of Babel represents a religious system that wants to approach God on their own terms, not on the basis of uh, obedience to the Word of God and, and all, but they reject God's ways, they reject His commandments, they reject God's way of salvation, God's way uh, that God has given for man to approach Him, God's instruction on how to have a relationship with Him, how to go to heaven. All of these things are rejected, and it is man coming up with his own ways to worship God, independent of God and, and based upon human effort. And that's why we're told in that passage in Genesis chapter 11, they declared to build a tower whose top is in the heavens. Come, let us build a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. And the Babylonians built great, great towers called ziggurats, and, uh, which spiraled up into the sky. Perhaps you've seen pictures of them. And, and uh, up at the top then were the signs of the zodiac. And so these towers were basically religious buildings. That's what they were building, was a religious building. And here's man wanting to relate to God. He wants a relationship with God in some sense, but he wants it on his terms. doesn't want it on, on God's terms. The Tower of Babel represents a religious system that's man-centered rather than God-centered. Again, Genesis chapter uh, 11, verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. There's no mention of concern for God here supremely, but for their own selves. And it's a religious system that gives the appearance of being about God, but it's really just another uh, excuse or another environment now to worship self and, and all while giving the appearance of, of worshiping God. And it isn't that these kinds of people, both back in the time of Babylon and then throughout you know, biblical history and, and then even in the great tribulation period, it isn't that they don't like church, so to speak. They do. They just don't want it to be about God. <laughs> they want it to be about them, like everything else in the world, because everything else in the world is, is about us. And ultimately, Babel becomes known in the Bible by its, its equivalent in the Greek language, which is Babylon. And if Babylon is known for one thing throughout the Scriptures, it is known for its idolatry. And idolatry is the worship of any created thing. There are two camps in the world. There is the camp of creator, and that is a camp of one. <laughs> and then there's the camp of the creation, and that is uh, everything else. And to worship anything other than the creator of the heavens and the earth, the God of the Bible, in all is, is then to be engaged in idolatry. And over and over again in the scriptures, Babylon is spoken of as being a center of idolatry in the, in the ancient world. And it will be the center of idolatry during the great tribulation. Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah chapter 50, he said, A drought 
uh, speaking of Babylon, is against her waters and they shall be dried up for it is a land of carved images and they are insane with their idols. <laughs> Remember when uh, Shadrach, Meshach uh, and Abednego, they, um, uh, they were, Nebuchadnezzar was saying, if we don't worship, you know, this giant image of gold that I've put out here on the plane and everything that we're going to throw you uh, into the fire. And they said, let it be known to you, uh, O king that we do not serve your gods and uh, we will not worship the gold image that you have set up. Idolatry was probably the greatest characteristic of, of Babylonian uh, religion. And so spiritual Babylon is synonymous with, with idolatry. One of the reasons that God allowed the southern kingdom of Judah to go into captivity to the Babylonian uh, empire was to cure them of their idolatry. Uh, God's people had begun to worship all of the idols and all of the things that, that the um, uh, Babylonians were worshiping and all. And it's a goofy thing because what happens with God's people is that we, we, we're in this blessed place uh, that God has us as his people and, and it's a prosperous place as we obey the Lord. And then sometimes what we'll do, it's called backsliding, what a person will do is then begin to uh, drift out into the world a little bit and begin to worship what the world is worshiping. But because we stay connected with the body of Christ and we stay connected with the blessings that are associated with that, um, uh, sometimes we don't bear the full brunt of what we would be bearing if we were booted out of the nest, so to speak, like Paul said concerning that guy that was involved in sexual immorality at Corinth. Get him out. He wants the devil. Let him get his fill of the devil and see if he'll come back. That kind of a deal. And, uh, and he did come back. But God looked, and here they're dabbling with immor uh, idolatry and all of these things. And God said, you like idolatry? You think that's fun? You think that's a great way to live? Uh, then I'll give you idolatry. And he gave them over to the Babylonians. They were conquered by the Babylonians, and they had idols till they were coming out of their nose. Anywhere they wanted to look, there were idols all over the place. And then from the vantage point of the captivity within bond, uh, of Babylon, they got to see the bondage that these idols bring a person into, the destructiveness, the uh, infinitely inferior quality of life that is produced by this thing that so attracted them if they could just engage in it by measure. And by the time they came out of the Babylonian captivity, the children of Israel never again have gone into idolatry it cured them of that and Babylon was the place to send you to cure you of idolatry historically Babylon was a terrible persecutor of God's people the worshipers of Jehovah the worshipers of Yahweh and and the point in all of this as he speaks of it in the context of Babylon Babylon and all is that in scripture Babylon does represent a, a true literal city in in history it does represent a true world ruling empire that existed in history but in the scriptures it also represents this world system that opposes, always opposes, what it is that God is trying to do in the world through his people. 
And if a person takes and gives themselves over to the world, let's say you as a Christian said, all right, I'm not going to let the Bible and the Holy Spirit be the great influences in my life. I will go wherever the great Babylonian system around me that opposes God and what he's doing in the world would take me. Would the world system take you closer to God or away from God? Would take us away from God. It's about an entirely different thing. And the Bible speaks of it uh, symbolically in, in that kind of, of, of a way. And so it's its own religion, this Babylonian system. And it's funny how it will hide itself behind what's called liberalism today or, or uh, you know, separation of church and state and all. You know, Christians are the only religious people or other religions. And they don't realize, they realize, but they're not honest enough to say this is a religion too that we're engaged in. And it's just Babylonianism from a long time ago. And, and so what, what characterized ancient Babel and Babylon spiritually, we'll get to the text in about an hour, so just relax, uh, is what represented ancient Babel and Babylon will also characterize the religious system during the Great Tribulation. It will have no regard for the Bible. It'll have no regard for God's commandments. It will not allow anything to be authoritative as the voice of God. The big thing will be however you feel or whatever you want to do, and, and uh, as long as you're sincere and nobody can speak ill of, of anything else. The only group that won't be tolerated are Christians because they'll destroy uh, the Christians. I know, that sounds crazy. You can't believe it. Uh, so foreign to us, but um, that's the way that it's, it's going to be. There'll be a worldwide ecumenical coordinated, organized, open rebellion against God, the authority of his, his word. This religious system will encourage people to approach God on their own terms. God accepts anyone. You come your way however you want. You can approach him on the basis of, of human effort and works and not faith, and, and God will accept you. And it's a religious system that exalts man rather than exalting God. It's characterized by idolatry, and it is a terrible persecutor of those who worship the Lord. And all of that is a sign of uh, a symbol of what it is that started in ancient Babel and Babylon. It exists through to this day, uh, though it isn't honest enough to call itself that uh, outwardly for obvious reasons, and it will mark the religious community during the tribulation period. Now, it's interesting. We're given some clues in the passage to help us understand what city will be at the center of this mystery Babylon the Great. Now you notice in, in verse uh, 9, and uh, 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 should I warn you, I'm just, I'm just have it's a little dialogue, that, uh, so just, uh-huh, 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 okay. It's the guy in the sound booth, I'm not hearing the Lord. Don't think that I've got that kind of clarity. But, but here, well, let's, let's dive into it, and I'll give you some warnings in a moment. So, in terms of where this thing is located, notice in verse 9, uh, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And this verse seems to point pretty strongly to Rome. Rome has been called the city uh, of seven hills from ancient times. Uh, additionally, it can't really refer to literal Babylon because Babylon, uh, the literal Babylon was located on a very, very flat plain uh, and, and not on, on hills. It's interesting that uh, even Catholic scholars, some of them agree 
that it is Rome uh, that is being spoken of here in chapter 17, but they declare that it is speaking of pagan Rome, secular Rome, not religious uh, Rome. But the problem with that is in verse 6, and that is that John would not have been astonished at pagan Rome's persecution of the saints. Uh, that was going on at the very moment that he was writing this book. That this whore, this uh, harlot is uh, persecuting and destroying the saints, that astonishes him. So it doesn't add up. Notice in uh, verse uh, 7, it speaks, and also again in verse 12, of the beast that the woman is riding, and the beast has seven heads and it has ten horns, and as we have seen in past chapters, these uh, she's closely united to the ten kings or countries out of the old Roman Empire, Europe, which will rise uh, to, to power there in Europe, and so the religious uh, system or the, the, uh, the center for this religious system uh, appears to be in, in Europe. Verse 18 is very fascinating. Uh, again, and the woman whom you saw is that great city, the angel says to John, which reigns over the kings of the earth. And so she is a city. And we're told further that in John's day, she was, present tense, reigning over the kings of the earth. What empire ruled over the world at the time that John wrote this letter? Rome. What was the capital of the Roman Empire uh, that uh, the Roman Empire was ruling from? Its capital was Rome. And, and so following the rapture of the church, religion will not cease to exist in the world uh, much of Roman Catholicism will continue on, at least the system, uh, and, but it's not going to be Roman Catholics alone. And sometimes people kind of go to, we can be prone to go to one extreme to another related to this harlot and say it's all Roman Catholicism and, and all, or say this is a description of Roman Catholicism today. That's to be unfair to Roman Catholicism. And, and I'm not, uh, I don't uh, particularly concerned to handle Roman Roman Catholicism with kid gloves, but you, kid gloves because you, but you do need to be fair related to that system. What we're talking about here is much bigger than Roman Catholicism. It, it will involve much more than that. But you're talking about Roman Catholicism as a system centered in Rome following the rapture of the church following the removal of every single born-again Christian inside that religious system. And there are Christians in the Roman Catholic system. When Jesus wrote to the church at Thyatira, he spoke to those who were keeping themselves clean in an unclean environment. Now, I will say, as one who spent a little time in Roman Catholicism, that uh, my uh, understanding of it and experience with it is that if a person gets saved in Roman Catholicism, as a rule, it is in spite of the system and not because of the system. But I'll tell you, the, same, the first person I ever ran into in my life is a young boy uh, uh, that I ever ran into that I looked at and later on realized this person is spirit-filled. And this person loves Jesus, loves God, knows Jesus, knows God in a way that I do not was through a Catholic priest, one particular Catholic priest who I heard give a homily on a Sunday morning in a, in a Catholic church. 
There are people who are born again and been lots of godly people through the ages in Roman Catholicism and, and all. I won't minimize their problems. We'll talk about that in, in a moment. But you remove the influence of the body of Christ from that system and it is going to turn into something else. It will unite with uh, other religions of the world uh, to take its place in kind of a world religious system. So Roman Catholicism seems to be represented in it. But when the rapture of the church occurs, how much of liberal Protestantism do you think will be left behind? <laughs> Maybe more than, than Catholics. I'm not talking about people who are truly born again or truly Protestants or whatever label you want to put on them. But when you don't believe that Jesus is God, Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you're going to die in your sins. That wasn't just a rag doll that died on the cross for us. It wasn't merely a human being that died on the cross for us. It would do us no good. It is the fact that it was the sinless, perfect Son of God that died on the cross that we have access to heaven like we do. You throw that away and you can't be saved. Are we on the radio? Anyway, okay. So, I don't care. When you come to town with nothing, you can leave with nothing. I mean, you know, it's a big deal. But if you're not born again, you don't go in the rapture. And if you don't believe in being born again, you're probably not going to go in the rapture because you're probably not concerned about being saved. Liberal Protestantism, almost probably to a person, will be left intact. What about the cults? What about Mormonism? What about Jehovah Witnesses? What about these things? They're going to go in the rapture? not going to go on the rapture on that based upon the doctrines that are there I do believe that a lot of people are going to get saved immediately after the rapture when they realize what it is that has happened and all of these things you have a lot of different people left behind to say nothing of these you know other religious systems in the world and all, all so much religion in the world is going to go on completely uninterrupted following the rapture of, of uh, the church. And, and the system will then become, now we've got to unite together, let's get behind this, you know, what's going on in the wor this world, this new thing that we're involved in and all, and worship whatever God you want, however you want, as long as you're sincere, and don't judge the practices or, or the beliefs of, of others. Now you could literally spend months of, of Sunday nights looking into the old Babylonian religion and, and study its incredible impact upon uh, principally uh, ritualistic churches that call themselves Christian, principally uh, Roman Catholicism or, or Eastern uh, Orthodox. And there are many, many good books that are written about this, and you can get them in the library or you can purchase them. But it is very important to remember here that this false religious system is going to include apostate Protestant churches and denominations to and non-Christian religions to. It is way bigger than Roman Catholicism and it does not include everyone who is a Roman Catholic because many of them will be raptured. Now notice his description here 
as we've read through the first six verses. John has invited, verse 1, by one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls to come and to see the judgment of the great harlot. And so this religious system is called a great harlot. I think in the old King James, uh, they actually use the word whore. There's a strength to it that I like. But she is a prostitute, unlike the church. She is nothing like what God produces in a human life, which is a, a chaste virgin bride in, in the Scriptures. That's what the body of Christ is. She's called a harlot four times uh, in the chapter, and she has evidently prostituted herself and the truth of God for gain and for wealth and for power. Now, what is a physical uh, harlot or prostitute? It is someone who will sell their purity for price. For money, for possessions, for position, a harlot is a person who has a price. You can buy them. You can buy what is and ought to be most dear to them. And a spiritual harlot is one who will compromise their spiritual convictions if the price is right. If a person, it's a person who has a price that can be offered to them for them to be unfaithful to, to Jesus. There's a story of a man who asked a woman if she would go to bed with him for a million dollars. And uh, she said, yes, she would. And uh, then he offered her $20. And she was completely offended and said, uh, what do you think I am, a harlot? And uh, he said, well, we've already established that. Now we're just negotiating. <laughs> now that, that's as close to the edge as I get. Uh, related to uh, illustrations on things. But God is hardly any less graphic uh, in, in His, his uh, Scriptures. And it's a good illustration for the protection of our, our spiritual purity. And the point is that it isn't the size of the price that is the issue. It is that there is a price at all. Having any price that could be offered to me to cause me to leave Jesus and be unfaithful to him makes me a spiritual uh, harlot, and, and that is to engage in spiritual harlotry. We talk about God in terms of how graphic he is related to all of this. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 23, he spoke through Jeremiah and said to the nation of Israel, How can you say I'm not polluted? You've gone after the Baals and see your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift dromedary, uh, broken loose from her ways, a wild donkey used uh, to the wilderness that sniffs at the wind in her desire, in her time of mating. Who can uh, turn her away? All those who seek her will not weary themselves. In her month they will find her. In other words, Judah had drifted so far from God that all the world had to do was just approach her to commit spiritual adultery with her and she would readily uh, cooperate with them. And of course the one great protection against spiritual idolatry is, is not to have a price, to recognize that we've been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ and there shouldn't be anything that would then be offered to us that we would bite on to, to, to take and to turn away from him. And so she gives the appearance of being committed to God as all religions do, but she has no commitment to God or the standard of his word at all. Notice in verse 1 that she sits also, she sits on many waters. And look over in verse 15, we're told what these waters represent. 
They represent peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. In other words, she is centered in Rome, but her influence is going to reach into every corner of the world. She is, will be a one-world religious system. Notice in verse 2 that the kings of the earth will commit fornication with her. Now, what is fornication? It represents a union. And the kings of the earth are going to unite themselves with this religious system. And so this religious system is going to have for a time the full backing of government and political powers. So for a time this religious system is going to bring pleasure to the powers that be. Uh, they're going to, it's, uh, she is going to be useful to the political side of things in, in the world. And they will openly and publicly endorse this religious system, join themselves to it and all, but we'll see later that they will destroy the system once they're through with it. Notice in verse 2 also that the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now to be drunk with wine is to be under the influence of alcohol, isn't it? So if I'm, if I'm drunk, I'm under the influence of, of alcohol. And so the inhabitants of the earth here, they're going to come under her influence spiritually. So just as a person who's under the influence in terms of alcohol has a distorted view of reality and is a danger to themselves and others as a result of it, uh, here in what she's preaching and what she's doing, she's going to give the world a distorted view of, what, uh, of spiritual reality and, and be a danger to herself and, and to others. Notice in verse 3, then, the angel carries John away into the spirit, in the spirit into the wilderness where he sees the harlot then for himself. And she's sitting on a scarlet beast. And from chapter 13, we know that the beast refers to the Antichrist who will be at the head of this uh, one-world government uh, centered in Europe during the Great Tribulation period, a revived Roman Empire, scarlet, deep, deep red, a very appropriate color uh, for uh, the uh, Antichrist because of all of the blood that he's going to shed during the Tribulation period. Uh, it's also the color of, of the devil. It identifies him with the devil, Satan, who will possess the Antichrist as in, in chapter 12 uh, John records, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, speaking of the devil. So he has the same colors uh, as the devil. She sits on the beast there in verse 3, and uh, he's going to lull her uh, to sleep and make her think that she's in charge of what's going on for the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, and uh, as long as it suits the Antichrist's purposes. He's very, very clever. Notice also in verse 3 that the beast was full uh, of names of blasphemy. So this woman, this one-world religion, will be instrumental in helping the Antichrist gain the trust of the world when everything about him is blasphemy to God and to heaven. He is going to be a blasphemous person. And where you would just look at him and say, this guy is crazy and stay away from him and look what he says about God. And then people will look and say, but yeah, but look at what the religious people are saying about him and how closely they're united. He can't be altogether bad. And this religious system distracts the world away 
from how blasphemous what this Antichrist is doing, what he's setting up, what he is saying uh, about God, and, and how effectively it's, it's interesting to watch in, in uh, election years. I certainly don't say this about all politicians. God bless politicians who are uh, trying to make a difference uh, in, in a difficult place in the world but some politicians are very effective at using religion and religious leaders to gain a trust uh, among the larger public that they don't deserve and they wouldn't be otherwise able to gain and the antichrist will be very good at using religion it's interesting to i don't understand candidly uh... each election uh... season and boy is politics dirty dirty business today and uh... and all but sometimes you'll see uh, a man or a woman who's running for public office pro-abortion like crazy and a pulpit gets turned over him it's just like why don't you just stab me related to that i mean it's almost unbearable to watch as you think about the children and all of these things and then a pulpit a sacred desk is turned over in a political season for for that that kind of thing it's unbelievable to me but it happens all of the time and the antichrist will be very very good at it uh, also notice that the beast verse three has seven heads and ten horns and uh, we'll get to it a little bit more when we get into verse 9 and see that the seven heads represent the seven mountains on which the woman uh, sits. In verse 12, we're told that the ten horns uh, refer to the ten kings who will rise up out of the revived Roman Empire and uh, they will give their authority to the beast for a short time in human history and seven years to be exact. So they represent the ten toes of Nebuchadnezzar's vision in Daniel chapter uh, 2. Now notice in verse 4, very, very interesting. She is arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. So this religious system is going to be fabulously, fabulously wealthy. Uh, she is dressed like a queen. Uh, she is bejeweled in, in a way that is indescribable here. And she's become very, very wealthy by prostituting the truth about God and his word. By giving people the impression that they are worshiping God when in reality they are worshiping themselves and their own ideas about uh, God. And you see it all around us today, uh, even in what calls itself uh, Protestantism. Look at Roman Catholicism. And... Uh, the other uh, ritualistic uh, religions. Do you ever watch TV and watch the masses or whatever it might be and, and uh, you look at the robes and the collars and the hats and the staffs and uh, the colors and the rings and the staggering wealth and all of those things and, and you look at it and, and you say, uh, think to yourself, that's exactly what Jesus had in mind. No, you don't. And it's so different from him. It doesn't mean that we're not capable of it too. But you look at it and you go, you know, somebody got on a different path somewhere here from the book of Acts to where this thing is today. And you look at it and you say, where in the world all that come from? Where do you make a hat like that? I'm not making fun. I'm just saying, you, they're just, they're amazing. And they, they aren't just haphazardly put together. Those, those are put together by design. 
Those, those have a place in human hi- they, history. They came from some place. And you look at the rings and the canes and the jewelry and the whole, and you go, where in, in, in the world did it come from? And it, and it came from somewhere. And where it came from is the mystery religion of Babylon the Great. And at the time that uh, the Roman Emperor Constantine won that battle when he went out and conquered in the name of this, you know, image of the cross and all, and 300 A.D. plus, he takes and he makes Christianity the official religion of Rome. And, I mean, instantly, in, in a week... The Christians in the Roman Empire went from a hunted, like animals, persecuted group in, in Rome to now becoming members of the, the state government-sponsored religion. It was one of the most astonishing turnarounds for Christians in history, and it wasn't all, altogether a, a, a good one. So, so what happened then is you've got Rome was very, very good, about using its wealth to support religious uh, systems and all kinds of different religions and idolatry all over the place. And, and they, they had very sophisticated ways to keep the Roman Empire unified and all. And then Constantine comes along and says, all of that other stuff is gone. Christianity is now the official uh, religion of Rome. And those other guys in, in these false Babylonian religions and everything, and Babylonian religion dominated all of the different cults. They were hybrids of it and all. And they looked at it and said, oh boy, the meal ticket is over. That's too bad. We, have a, we don't have an uncompromising bone in our body. You couldn't get us to move from this in order to come under a Roman paycheck again. We have convictions about our God and all. No, when the money moved to Christianity... They moved to Christianity, and they brought all their stuff with them at a time when the church, in terms of of numerically and and these kinds of things, without the ability to expose them and keep it from, you know, the whole system from from developing. And it all came in from from Mystery uh, Babylon uh, the the Great. That's one of the things about you know, Roman Catholicism, when I, when I look at it, and um, is, as I look at it, its outward appearance in some ways, but that's of less concern, and ultimately, but uh, when it talks about salvation, and salvation is based upon uh, the church, and uh, not upon a simple faith in Jesus Christ, period, for free gift of salvation, but it's believing in Jesus and now keeping the sacraments, and it builds this whole dependence upon a religious system. Don't mess with salvation with me. Don't tell me the cross isn't enough. I don't care what the religious system is. I don't care if I tell myself I'm not buying it. When Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished, it is finished. It was a finished salvation that was given to us. And anyone, I don't care what the religious system that comes in and says salvation is based on some of man's works or even based upon faith in Christ and some other thing is saying that the cross of Christ was not enough. And that's a big problem to me. It's a big problem to God. And, and I'm convinced... The reason that Roman Catholicism, and I want every Catholic saved, 
The reason that Roman Catholicism gets away with what it gets away with, all of the tradition and all of the baggage and all of those different things and all, is because of how long it's been around. You take Roman Catholicism as a system and say it has not existed now for 1,700 years. And then if it was launched on the world scene tomorrow, calling itself a Christian religion, I mean the whole world would be up in arms over it. But, but it isn't that case because historically it's been around for so, uh, so long. But you look at the worship of Mary and, and, uh, and salvation and all of these things and you look at how many of the things in that system are, were included in the Babylonian religion. The picture of the mother and child with a halo and that whole thing. It's out of Babylon. The confessional, it's out of Babylon. Only the priest having religious knowledge, that's Babylon. Relic worship, Babylon. Rosary beads, Babylon. The heart on fire in the pictures that you see, the Roman Catholic pictures of Mary and, and Jesus and all of these things. It's Babylon. The lighting of candles to God, Babylon. The sign of the cross, it's Tammuz. It's Babylon. The power structure of the church with the priests and the nuns and the whole thing, it's all Babylon. The priest's headdress, his robes, his garments, his staff, his crown, his everything, all modeled out of Babylon. Holy water, burning incense, Babylon. The weeping and, and the bleeding images, it's all out of Babylon. And you could go on and on for hours about these things. And if you're a Roman Catholic, either on the radio or by tape, or in this room today, I don't mean to offend you needlessly. I'm just, at, I'm just one guy in the world trying to be faithful to the Word of God. And I just ask you, take a look at all those things. And then take a look at the Lord, Lord Jesus. Read your Bible and put the two things up against one another and decide which is which and which is the right way because salvation is at stake. And I want you to be in heaven and you look and say, where is this in the Bible? Does this look like Jesus at all? And if you can't find it in the Bible, and it doesn't look like Jesus, then you better continue your search because there's something better waiting for you. Notice in verse 4, in her hand she has a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. So she's filled with the abominations and the moral and the spiritual filth of the ancient Babylonian system. And so like Babylon of old, she tries to make the whole world as spiritually drunken and as spiritually mad as she is. Jeremiah spoke about uh, Babylon and the drunkenness of all of this. He said, Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunken of her wine, therefore the nations are mad. Notice in verse 5, on her forehead she had a name written. Now, ancient historians tell us 
about ancient Rome that some of the most brazen or the most shameless prostitutes would walk around town with like a scarf or some kind of a headdress that had their name actually across, across their forehead there so that um, people could, you know, remember their name and come back or some kind of a thing or whatever. But they clearly uh, and shamelessly identify themselves as, as a, a, a harlot. And here is this woman, here is this religious system. She is, you know, decked out like crazy. She has jewelry like you can't believe, clothes like you can't believe. She looks like a million bucks, but she's a harlot. She's a whore in the eyes of God, spiritually. Old King James, sorry about that. But that's God's language on it. God looks at her, and whatever she looks like to everyone else, he says, from the vantage point of heaven, she is nothing but a harlot. Well-dressed, heavily bejeweled, but she is a harlot. And you look at the name. I mean, you think about, think about the terminology, the strength of the terminology for what God is trying to get through related to all this. The name there in verse 5, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. So she just openly, shamelessly identifies herself with the ancient Babylonian religion. Now someone may object and say, wait a second, wait a second. Roman Catholicism doesn't openly identify itself with the Babylonian religion today. If somebody were to say that to me, I'd say, you're not listening I am not saying that this is what Roman Catholicism is necessarily now in its fullness. This is what it will become with others, with others, following the removal of God's people from the face of the earth. Now notice in verse 6 that she's drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. At the time that Jesus uh, or John receives this revelation uh, concerning all of this, Rome was in the middle of a murderous persecution of Christians. Christians were being persecuted. They were hiding anywhere they could hide just to, to survive. That's what was going on. That's why uh, one of the reasons John, rather, I don't know what I called him earlier, but John is on the island of, of Patmos because of that whole persecution and uh, uh, that, that, was, uh, that was, was going on. Roman Catholicism, long, long history of persecuting and killing those who will not swear a greater allegiance to the church rather than to God alone or to keep the doctrines of the church rather than obeying the Word of God and placing the Word of God above so-called church teaching. And there's no denying it. Great book for Christians to read is the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. And uh, you see how many people have died at the hands of the religious system and all of that. And, it, and if you read it, it'll, it'll form you. You won't give up your faith and, and, and uh, salvation by faith alone and the authority of the Scriptures and these things so easily when we realize the price that people have paid to stay faithful to these things so that we could then stay faithful in, in our uh, generation. Again, I'm not talking about individual Catholics necessarily. I'm talking about the Roman Catholic system. The history is terrible. One of the most brutal persecutors of born-again Christians throughout all of history. It really 
was the dark ages. Now the tribulation, uh, this tribulation harlot uh, religious system isn't going to even you know, blink at killing Christians during the great tribulation uh, period. And those who refuse to become a part of her system and all, they'll just rise up and, uh, and take them out. And you notice that it talks about her being drunk and, and all of this kind of stuff. She enjoy, she'll enjoy doing it. It gives her a high to persecute the, the, the genuine. Now notice in, in verse 6 that the sight of her caused John to marvel with great amazement. So when John writes this revelation, the Christians under the Roman Empire are being severely persecuted, hunted down and, and imprisoned and, and killed. And as a result, they, they were a very holy, a very pure, a very faithful, a very committed group of Christians because uh, persecution had weeded out any kind of uh, weakness in them. They loved the Word of God and they loved to obey the Word of God. And when John looks down through the ages and he sees what some part of professing Christianity would turn into as a persecutor of the church, I mean, he's shocked. He's dumbfounded at the revelation that a religious system claiming Christian roots would become a worse persecutor of true Christians than even ancient secular Rome. Shocked by it. And then the angel noticing as John's looking at all of this and he's marveling at all of this, he offers to explain the mystery uh, of the woman and of the beast that carries her. And you notice what he says uh, to her uh, there, uh, to John. But the angel said to me, verse 7, uh, Why do you marvel? I tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the seven horns. Listen to what I have to tell you right now. It will clear everything up. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits and there are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes he must continue a short time and the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven is going to perdition and the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no authority as yet but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast these are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast so there you go it's just clear as a bell Things are very, very easy for angels. <laughs> what in the world does all that mean? Oh, I have another week to find out because we're going to stop here <laughs> tonight and pick it up um, next week. So if Shekau would come forward, we'll look to them to close us out in, in a worship song and, and all.